Hello, and welcome to The Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. Our guest this week is Sir Anthony Selden. Anthony is the author or editor of 45 books on contemporary history, including inside takes on the last five prime ministers. He's the former head of both Wellington College and Brighton College, and from 2015 to 2020, he was the vice chancellor of the University of Buckingham. He's currently the deputy head of the Times Education Commission, which is tasked with figuring out why we educate people, how we should be educating them, what education is for, and how to build a better economy, society, and world through education. I met Anthony on a train to Paris, headed to an education conference. He did a headstand on the Eurostar, which was moving very fast, and then again on stage in front of a live audience at the OECD. He's a devoted practitioner of yoga and meditation, a bit whimsical while also being very serious, and clearly not afraid to show us that things need to be turned upside down, literally. The 2020s are going to see the richest, most exciting decade of change in primary, secondary, higher education, adult education that we have ever seen. I have no doubt. Anthony and I discuss why he's so confident the pace of change in education is accelerating, why every single human being should be part of a university, and why well-being needs to be a priority in every school and university. He makes a compelling and quite beautiful case for why we should retain our optimism against a backdrop of world events intent on crushing that optimism. Anthony has been one of Britain's leading voices calling for radical change in education, moving from what he calls the third education revolution, marked by homogenization, heavy administrative burdens on teachers, and little social mobility, to a fourth education revolution, one which embraces artificial intelligence to transform and personalize learning, while freeing up teachers to focus on relationships, develop student agency, and critical thinking, and offer everyone more autonomy. He often quotes Harvard professor and author Howard Gardner, don't ask how intelligent a child is, ask how they are intelligent. I love that quote. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Anthony Selden, what a pleasure and an honor to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I want to start by talking about mental health and how we as a society get better at taking care of ourselves and of each other. And to that end, I want to start by asking you a question, and I'm going to hope that you answer it most sincerely, even though it's an incredibly mundane question. How are you today? I am fine, and I love talking about my work. So that's a a good thing. And it's taking time away from a book I'm writing, which I've got a bit bogged down in. So so that's nice to have the distraction. I did quite a long yoga session this morning and meditation session. There's lots of stuff that's uncomfortable going on around me, but probably all the better, therefore, that I feel quite centred. I mean, it does matter. We do have a choice over how we present ourselves to the world, the face each morning that we put on is a face that we choose. Well, I will be honest with you. I am very excited to be talking to you. I'm also quite nervous because you're quite a polymath. So I'm a little intimidated, but we're going to just push on because that's a good place to be. I would love to hear a little bit more about the story of you. You as a child, your hopes, your dreams. Did you always want to be a schoolmaster or a vice chancellor? I... (laughs) wanted, I think, to write books. I wanted to make people happy. I was enchanted by plays and drama. I wanted to farm. I love the countryside, the west of 
England, but countryside everywhere and rivers and lakes and the sea. I didn't know really what I wanted to do. And I'm still waiting to decide what to do with my life. So I'm open to all suggestions. Seems to me that you're filling your time in substantive ways. You've been sounding the alarm bell about young people's mental health and well-being for ages. You implemented a well-being curriculum at Wellington College where you were master, I think, in 2008. Is that right? You founded Action for Happiness. You've argued universities must accept responsibility for the pastoral care of students. This was all pre-COVID. Since COVID, every metric of young people's well-being has gotten significantly worse. Anxiety, depression, suicide attempts, we're seeing more violence in schools and in society. Since you are a bit of an expert on both school leaders and political leaders, what specifically would you tell the prime minister right now to do to support the mental health of young people? And what would you tell a school leader? That it's not just about having more counselors and having more antidepressant drugs uh, necessary that those are, they are addressing young people when they have already developed or presented problems, self-harming, a suicide attempt, time off school for depression or anxiety, or they've developed eating disorders, whatever it is. We can see that if we like, these young people have already hit the bottom of a waterfall. And there is work that can be done at the top of the waterfall to reduce the number who fall over the edge. Because once you do fall over the edge, of course, there's bountiful help and hope about making a full recovery. But it is also more expensive and harder to put someone together once things have gone significantly wrong than it is if we can help them develop the skills, the habits, the intuitions, the practices to look after their own selves better so that a smaller number fall over the edge. And if they do, then maybe they fall over less seriously. So we can see it as, if you like, an inoculation. How can we give people a mental unwellness inoculation that will not prevent it, but reduce the number and reduce the severity? And you know, there is a lot of work that schools can do. So when I was at Wellington, very early on, I had this powerful sense based on an earlier school, Brighton College, that happiness mattered and that happy children flourish. They perform their best at school, not just academically, but in other ways too. And they stand the best chance of going on to university or to a career job, straight into a job where they are self-reliant, capable of managing their own lives and not falling into the many bear traps that exist. But I didn't quite know how to do it. And then early in 2006, I came across uh, Marty Seligman at the University of Pennsylvania and the founder of the academic field of positive psychology, which is concerned to reduce mental unwellness and to enhance optimize human flourishing and human resilience and human agency, the ability to lead the kind of life that we want to lead. So that was a revelation for me. uh, And it was that approach that underpinned the teaching at Wellington College. How do you respond to critics who say, we're just trying to make everybody happy and feel good and really what people need to survive in this world and to thrive is competence and skills and knowledge? 
they're right. These things matter. And if people feel a burden to be happy, it just becomes another burden to beat themselves up with. Uh, and life is often not happy. So the approach is not to reduce uh, unhappiness, but to give us more resources to enhance our capability at dealing with whatever life throws at us. We're all going to uh, lose people we love. We're all going to be disappointed in our friends and at work. We're all going to have health and other difficulties. And why is it that some can succumb and others can still be smiling and resilient with, with that inner strength? So we're looking at not making people happy. We're looking at making people resilient, uh, people who can live life in tune with what how they want to live their lives and give them more skills and agency that will allow them to negotiate the very tricky uh, circumstances of life better. So there's no contradiction with the positive psychology, well-being, movements that I've been associated with and that critique that you offered. You said something very interesting at the end of your um, fourth education revolution book, which I really loved, which is let's not lose sight of the thrill of challenge and of stretching ourselves, that this push towards well-being isn't related to a lack of rigor. I think some people conflate those two, but that if we feel safe in ourselves and in our communities, we can push ourselves. It allows us, releases us a bit to excel. I really love that point. It captured me. I'm curious what you would say to educators who say, yes, of course, I love the system that you talk about. I would prefer that. That's not the one we have. I need to work within the confines of the system, teach to the test, make sure they get the marks that will help them succeed in the world we have right now. What should they do? Well, we can serve both Caesar and God to use that parable. It's not either or. Students who are having their own characters developed, who are learning about how to acquire the skills of living well and decisiveness and being in charge of their own lives will also do the best academically. So for 25 years in the US, UK, worldwide, we've had a sense of a dichotomy of on the one hand, you've got fluffy, pink, do-goodery, and let's all talk about our feelings today, which is enough to drive kids around the bend. On the one hand, and on the other hand, we've got tough grad grind, the Charles Dickens character, from hard times, factory schooling, where all that matters is results. And you know, both are characterizations. And there is now a new wisdom that is growing in the 2020s, that it's not either or, but it's both and, that if we do look after people well, they will perform better. And exactly the same amongst the teaching staff or university staff. If staff feel valued, if their physical and mental and emotional health is being considered, they will have more loyalty, they'll be less likely to want to go, they will give more to the organisation. Then the same in the workplace. I and mean, that's exactly why high-performing organisations are not ruthless unless they are so exorbitantly high paying like Goldman Sachs that no one cares. Even those organisations, even those. So, I mean, it was great having Seligman talking, introducing him to, to a couple of the most cutthroat 
banks and there were a lot of pennies or were they dollars being dropped as people really understood that they will be able to do a better job and be better mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and members of their communities if they take seriously the principles of sex of well-being and an action for happiness we boiled it down to 10 of which one by the way is the taking of risks and challenging oneself and another is ensuring that, that we do have a sense of, of accomplishment and achievement. And where we have that, that gives us energy and helps our mental health. Let's talk about a curriculum that would serve students, because that is obviously a tool that educators have. There's so many demands right now, digital literacy, media literacy, financial literacy, emotional literacy, curiosity, skills we want to develop, mindsets we want to develop, knowledge we want to develop. I think it can feel overwhelming. I'm going to make you education minister. You get to rewrite the curriculum. What's in, what's out? Well, you begin with the International Baccalaureate, and it does have at its heart a IB, International Baccalaureate, learner profile, which every person of every age anywhere in the world could benefit from. It's non-culture, non-national specific, non-age specific. It promotes curiosity. It promotes self-reliance. It promotes integrity and honesty uh, and other virtues. And it is a much broader curriculum. So in Britain, we are notoriously narrow down to three subjects at A-level. The IB offers six in its earlier programmes, the primary years and middle years. It's also much broader. So both breadth and depth matter. Knowledge matters, but also skills and character matter. The arts matter, but so does STEM. Active learning matters rather than just rote learning. There is a space sometimes for rote learning when one's learning scientific formulations or laws of of language. So it, it will be a much more holistic and much more technology facilitated curriculum that allows more freedom in schools. Schools have been shown little respect by school systems, whereby teachers are told what to teach, how to teach it, when to teach, so that the creative act of teaching is sacrificed to a fear-driven system of uh, you have to play by the rules, which dehumanises. If you dehumanise a teacher, you dehumanise a child. Uh, if you dehumanise a child, you dehumanise a community. So we can have our cake and eat it, as the saying goes, and uh, the International Baccalaureate, because it's important to not just to be plucking hazy notions. The International Baccalaureate has been going for 60 years, uh, shows what can be done. And the fact that it is still a minority subject is itself revealing. I think the most heartening single transformation of outlook comes in uh, Andrea Schleicher, who's Andrea Schleicher, the head of the OECD's education arm, oversees the PISA tests, and he has moved in the last five years firmly in the direction of a more holistic understanding that you can have this, it's not either or, it's both and, that you need knowledge and skills, you need well-being and traditional teaching, you need the sciences and maths as well as the arts and humanities. And we'll see that reflected and already are seeing it reflected in the tests that OECD are offering around the world. So we'll see change by 2030, not least thanks to this 
brilliant podcast, the world of education will be changed, whether we live in Ulaanbaatar, Washington, D.C. or London. You talk about the role of AI in education. I think you believe there's real opportunity for broadened access, for personalization, a lot of promise in AI. You also highlight some of the potential dangers. Some of the schools you cite, however, I've actually spent time in alt schools, which no longer exist, summit schools. And I have to say, I too, on paper, believe in the promise. And in the classrooms, I think they feel quite lonely. I'd also emphasize that while the pandemic showed us the promise um, of technology, it also left a lot of people feeling like that did not deliver. So I'm curious where you are right now with this great promise. Clearly, we're heading towards it. It's not as if we can turn our backs on sort of technological progress. However, what do you feel is the real promise of technology in classrooms, knowing more now than we did two years ago? Let me be completely clear, Jenny, on two points. One is that the human matters. If we do not uh, live in the real world of human relationships, which I'd also extend out to relations with nature, there is no life. Life in the metaverse will not be life. It will be a form of, of death, a form of hell, if that's all that there is. Point one, point two, much more briefly, is that we can't stop it, as you suggested in there, Jenny. We can't stop it, we can shape it. And therefore, we have to shape this incoming technology. Now, you're talking there about third education revolution technology with Zoom classes. AI is a, a different level altogether because it is technology that individuates itself on people. It is not possible if one lives deep away from towns to be in school. It's also impossible in many areas of Brixton and London or the Bronx or the outskirts of Bangkok to find high quality uh, schools that can be hit and miss. What this technology does is it individuates itself and allows an outstanding teacher and marker and assessor for every child that personalizes itself on them. And when that goes well, it means that it can free up a lot of school time to do the sociable work. That at the moment, the young people arrive at school and they're in classes for five hours, maybe uh, out of seven. And the rest of the time is in the rushed assembly, corridors, lunch break, and then they're, they're off. Because the learning will take place in the morning and the evenings, weekends, holidays, when young people best like to learn, suits their body clocks, suits their habits best. I mean, school learning should be the most uh, gloriously joyful part of anybody's life, uh, because learning is joyful when it takes place properly. But it often isn't in a huge class where the dominant feature in the child's mind is often the fears and did they have breakfast are they going to get bullied in the corridor after the lesson what did the teacher think of me it just doesn't work very well it just is a terribly inefficient way so the technology will personalize itself and it will then free up so much of the school day for 
social activity, for sports, for arts, for debating, for teamwork, for creative work, for volunteering work, maybe looking after a, a small farm that the school has to help young people learn to engage in what is real. Because in the world of the metaverse, young people need to have their hands in the soil, uh, they need to be with animals, they need to see the cycle of growing. So there'll be much more time. In other words, we're using some of the less real in cyberspace to do the heavy lifting on learning to free up much more time for social and human interactions. When you talk about that love of learning, you've operated in both the school sector and the university sector. Which sector are you more worried about? I'm not worried about anything because I think that change is beginning to happen. The tragedy of COVID is it has driven many people to loneliness and despair, isolation, including the most vulnerable, that rhythms of life have been disrupted, particularly for those with learning difficulties and with autism and other issues in, in life. And that is helping wake government up to the fact that we cannot return to the world of the third education revolution model, as I write about in that book you referred to. It's a broken model. It has not ensured social mobility. Most countries are seeing a social immobility, a greater division between the accomplishment of the well-off and the least well-off. It secondly has not allowed individuation of, of learning that young people have to move and at universities if you're in the first or final year at the same speed as other people at your age. This new system allows us to learn not at the age that we're at, but at our stage of understanding. The old system did not reduce the burden on teaching and administration staff. Administration has gone up absurdly, like in so many of the social professions. So much time is away from the front line doing the job of, of nursing or being a doctor or caring or teaching uh, into administration. It, it then hasn't uh, helped young people individuate. It homogenizes young people, which is uh, why we have so many mental health uh, problems. It, it isn't interested in the, the individual's answers and individual's responses. There's no time to do that. And finally, it has such a very narrow and mean uh, notion of what intelligence is based around IQ. Uh, it doesn't answer that extraordinarily penetrating question of the great Harvard education psychologist, Howard Gardner. Don't ask how intelligent a student is. Ask rather, how are they intelligent? And the notion of multiple different intelligences and why it is that so many of the most successful and flourishing people in our communities have not been those who've got the stream of top grades at, at school and college. So there's a recognition that the system is utterly, totally broken and we're going to be moving into a fourth education revolution model that we, everyone listening to this, uh, everyone involved in education at whatever level, in whatever country, needs to shape this new technology so it's in the interests of all, not just in the interests of the rich and powerful. And we can have a better quality of education, profounder, more democratised than ever before, and we can gain a clearer understanding too of truth and, and what is true and what is false. It seems that right now there's a push towards alternatives to higher education, which is exciting. There's Google certificates, there's boot camps. The cost of university can be quite prohibitive. In the U.S., college enrollment numbers are declining. I'm curious whether you embrace this 
push away from traditional academic higher education only because the data does seem to indicate that people with higher education degrees live longer, make more money, and do tend to be happier. I love universities. I love them so much that I argue that every person in the world should belong to a university, that all universities should open themselves out to having everybody on their books so that they can sit for courses and and take credits. Those who couldn't afford to go to university or did not, for whatever reason, can pick up credits and build up a degree. I mean, the moment we stop learning, we die. To live is to learn. To live well is to learn well. It's so tragic in so many societies, to every society, to have people who are desperate to learn, and that's not nourished. I would have university for everybody. Universities are changing and they need to be changing. They are products of a technological system developed in the 19th century of undergraduates and postgraduates coming to residential universities that was the only way that learning could be transmitted at the time. Clearly that has changed. Ten years ago, I presented a paper in Downing Street to group of university leaders and bankers in which I showed how the the hard stuff the university does, the libraries, the tutorials, the seminars, the lectures, the examinations, even then were being significantly compromised by developments in digital. And it was the so-called softer stuff, the social Uh, the extracurricular activities, the arts, sports, societies, which were not being, uh, and the development of of skills for careers, though even those are are digitally assessed. Uh, But that's not a good enough reason for that soft stuff, the social stuff, to want to go to university. Universities needed to adapt. So we will see adaptation in universities, HE. Of course, the reason why the data shows that people are better off if they go to university and uh, lead healthier, longer lives is simply because that was the world that was true then. It doesn't necessarily mean that universities and their current structure have to exist in that structure to get those benefits. The benefits will be conferred to a broader, wider uh, range of people using this new technology and new habits and understandings of learning. Very importantly, can I say that a year ago, this sense that I had that education from early years to adult education uh, into uh, our 80s, 90s and 100s, that we needed to understand it holistically and better, not least because of our new understandings of the way the brain works and the way human learning takes place and technology, but the necessity of of greening of uh, education and other changes meant that we needed to review education again. So that led through to, in Britain, the Times Education Commission, which I'm deputy chair of it. It's chaired by the brilliant journalist and writer, Rachel Sylvester, who's on the Times staff. And it has a range of people from the Astronomer Royal, Lord Rees, one of the world's great astronomers, to writers like Michael Morpurgo, to Nancy Rothwell, head of Manchester University and chair of the Russell Group, to Martha Lane Fox, a brilliant entrepreneur and understander and communicator about the power of digital. So it's, it's an amazing commission. And we're reporting in mid-2022 with a whole set of proposals all the way from early years up to higher education, adult education, saying that you, you can only understand education holistically. And we need to say farewell to the 20th century and the 19th century, which still dominates 
our education systems globally, and we need to understand why we're educating people, how we should be educating them, what we're educating them for, and how that will build a better world, a better society, a better economy, and how it will be more likely to get us through to the 22nd century. And are you optimistic that that report will lead to dramatic change? I'm certain about this. And if that report doesn't, in Britain, uh, we've lost another 10, 25 years. There's such a sense in the UK, but also abroad. And listening to extraordinary British entrepreneurs like Dyson, James Dyson, and extraordinary artists like Anthony Gormley, they're all of one mind that the education system is dull, flat, inert, passive, is preparing people with 20th century technology for 20th century society and economy, and we have to change it. At the moment, it's gripped by people who who paralyze with fear about change or paralyze with the lack of imagination about what education could be. They think it's all about the head. It's not. It needs to be about the head and the heart and the hand. Or they are little Englanders who have no understanding of what's happening in Scandinavia or in Uruguay or in Singapore or indeed in parts of the United States. Indeed, many people in the United States are unaware of what's happening elsewhere in the United States. Look at Arizona State University, for example, the, the extraordinary things that that is achieving compared to the more stable state universities. And the 2020s are going to see the richest, most exciting decade of change in primary, secondary, higher education, adult education that we have ever seen. I have no doubt. Some young people were just exonerated for pulling down a statue of a former slave trader. Is this worrisome precedent or overdue writing of historical wrongs? Both. There are deep wrongs that need to be righted. Whether destroying what's been created is the right way to do it is the question. It can be better to leave what's happened up there and to use it as a point of education. If you have a vacuum, a hole in the ground, no one's going to learn from it. If you pull out the concentration camps, no one is going to learn what happened there. Definition of a good leader? A good human being who knows themselves. How do we get a better stable of leaders? Have a better education system. Interesting how many of the good leaders in 2021, 22 are women. I think the reason why they're better leaders is they're more in touch with themselves and with other people. Best parenting advice you would offer to parents who want to support their children? Love your children, but not just unconditionally. Children need total love and acceptance, but they also need boundaries and expectations and rules and aspirations. So we need two hands to have a drink of water, two wings to fly. We need both kinds of parenting to bring up a child. And to pull it full circle to where we started, what is the one job you haven't had that you wish you had or you hope to? President of the United States. <laughs> I'll vote for you. All right. And we always end on these three questions. What's your favorite book about learning? I've just read a book, uh, The Grand Moan by Alain Fournier, an American writer killed in the First World War, written just before the First World War. It's like Catcher in the Rye or The Great Gatsby or Evelyn War's novels. It's a, a story about innocence and uh, growing up into a new 
world. It's unbelievably powerful. Well, my next question was going to be, what's your favorite book not about learning? Might it be that? Every book is about learning. Every book that is great will be teaching us more than probably uh, the best teacher we've ever had because that book is the best teacher we've ever had. And what are you binge watching? Ridiculously, a series which I watched with my son called 24. I love 24. That's not ridiculous. It's fantastic. Succession, although I wish it wasn't so grimy. I don't know what we get after we finished Succession. And great art is great precisely because it uplifts us. And however brilliant and stunningly written and acted and filmed Succession is, if anybody listening to this can tell me how they feel uplifted by it, please drop me an email. I've got an idea. I think most families have their intricacies, we could say, or dysfunctions. And I think in watching Succession, we can all feel a lot better about our own families. Okay, forget what I said about emails. I've just had the answer. <gasps> no, absolutely not. That was one answer. As we know, there are many. Uh, because I'm selfish, I'm going to ask a final personal question, which is I am a pathological optimist. I'm also a skeptic, sort of professional training. I feel like the world is working very hard to convince me away from my optimism. I want to believe people are good, that we can improve. Are we going to be okay? We have to believe in human goodness. The human heart is always good. Even the heart in the most corrupted people, if we see the goodness in them, then the world will do better than if we spend our lives criticizing their darker sides. And to see good in all, to see infinity in a grain of sand is sanity. And optimism is always right to have that hopeful heart as we get up each morning and approach the world. Don't let oneself be crushed, even in the darkest places in the world, in history, in the 20th century, in the appalling camps in Cambodia with Pol Pot or in the concentration camps. There was still hope and there was still goodness being transacted. They are the truest and the greatest heroes who can find goodness even in the world's greatest evil and darkness and the good will prevail on that note i would like to thank you very much for taking so much of your time this morning it's been a pleasure well thanks for having me is there something that you can use i really loved anthony's and both thinking we can embrace well-being and not compromise on academic rigor we can help shape the AI that will improve education and keep humans at the center of learning. We can prepare students for exams and life. We can be optimists and realists, hopeful and determined to improve the shambolic state of some things. The skeptic in me screams, we can't do this all, but my head and heart tell me we must. What other choice do we have? In his book, The Fourth Education Revolution, Anthony writes, quote, the lives of the highest achievers can be strewn with the debris of human suffering to themselves, to family, and to colleagues. It's a useful reminder that pushing for academic excellence at the cost of well-being has real consequences which accumulate over a lifetime and can result in a world of regret. Investing in how to have a good life, 
to cope with setbacks and loss, to see the pain in others and heal the same in ourselves is not selfish, but rather our best hope for progress. Thanks for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.